Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. What comes to mind when you think about Congress in the 19th century? Perhaps you imagine great orators like Henry Clay or Daniel Webster declaiming on the important issues then facing the Republic. And sure, in 1856, Congressman Preston Brooks attacked Senator Charles Sumner on the floor of the Senate, but surely Congress was a model of solemnity, right? Well, you'd be wrong. As Dr. Joanne Freeman of Yale University argues in her latest book, The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War, the federal legislature was often a very dangerous place. It was not unheard of for the people's representatives to cane their political opponents, engage in fisticuffs, or resort to dueling. And as Freeman finds, these violent delights had violent ends. Now before we get started, a reminder to like and subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week when I talk to Julie Silverbrook of the Constitutional Sources Project about digitizing the Constitution. But in the meantime, let's join Joanne Freeman on the field of blood. I do want to wade into this field of blood now, uh, if we may. And I, I guess let's start with the book's title because it is a very provocative title. And so what's the origin story behind that juicy piece of uh, propaganda on, on the front <laughs> <of you>. Propaganda, <laughs> harumph. Yeah. Um, it actually is one of those cases in which um, a quote mm-hmm. surfaced and offered itself to me, and it was so obviously a title. Um, it comes from a letter uh, written to Charles Sumner. So, so I should say, back mm-hmm. up for a moment and say, over the years that I've been working on this, when I would say to people, I'm writing a book about physical violence in the U.S. Congress. Mm-hmm. What they would know would be, oh, there's that guy who got caned yeah. by that guy. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. So, Charles Sumner was what they knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it happens to be that this is a quote written to Sumner after the caning. And um, this is going to be a somewhat of a paraphrase, but mm-hmm. the letter says, I knew that something was going to happen to you or, and he names a couple other senators, mm-hmm. on that field of blood, the floor of Congress. And, of course, writing this book, I thought, wow, now there's a person who assumed there was going to be bloodshed, who called Congress the field of blood. So certainly he has an awareness that we haven't necessarily had about the level of violence Mm -hmm. in there. So that very early on became the title. So it wasn't totally unexpected. Like People anticipated that something bad was going to happen, whether it was going to be to Sumner or somebody else. Right. By that point, by the late 1850s. By the late 1850s. Yeah. And so years ago, you you wrote this important book called Affairs of Honor, uh, National Politics and the Republic. And you looked at the deep connection between politics in the early republic and notions of honor and masculinity and the, and the dueling culture that ultimately cut short Hamilton's life, uh, Alexander Hamilton. So does the field of blood have its origins in that previous research, or did something um, spark your interest as you were working on something else? Well, um, a little of both. Yeah. It's a very historian answer. There's two <laughs> responses. Well, um, it's complicated. It, that's right. <laughs> there's, there's a conflict involved <laughs> and a paradigm, too. Um, it... it um, Partly it grew from it because Mm -hmm. one of the things I'm interested in is the logic of Mm -hmm. fighting and the logic of violence and the logic of partisanship in this time period. Um, So so clearly there's a link. And in the first book, um, the fact that in the absence of really organized political parties, that that honor culture helped Mm -hmm. to shape political combat was an important insight to me that I thought, well, it's probably not just true about yeah. 1789 to 1804, mm-hmm. however long the first book goes on. So when I was trying to figure out what my, what my next book would be about, I assumed it was going to have something to do with violence and politics and honor because I still wanted to investigate how those things connected. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I really didn't know. Um, and it wasn't until I had a, um, a research fellowship at the Library of Congress. Oh, okay. And uh, I was there for three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I, with in my mind, knowing basically honor, violence, politics, let's go. Yeah. Um, I knew that one congressman killed another congressman in a duel in 1838. Mm-hmm. So um, when I started doing my research, I went to the papers of a congressman from the state of the one who was killed and just started reading. Um, and as luck would have it, he wrote almost every day to his wife. And there was yeah. a lot of violence in there. And, you know, historians know that there has been some violence in Congress. And, mm-hmm. you know, most books talk about the late 1850s as being particularly violent. And um, But I didn't expect to see the level or amount of violence that I saw. Uh, and it surprised me. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was, is he like 
entertaining his wife in some <laughs> way. He's making this up. I know. Why are you? But I started keeping track. And, and basically from that point on, th- there was just so much more violence than I expected to find. And that really was what led me in. Drove you in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, and if you think about um, our own sort of public perception of, of that period, yes, people think of Charles Sumner and Preston Brooks and the Canning. And, ma- and maybe that's what they know. Or they think about... Hamilton, if they're thinking about sort of outside the institutions of, of the presidency or, or Congress. But, you know, but then we see on TV, we see, uh, it was a couple of years ago, there was a big brawl in the South Korean parliament and one of the Philippines were like, oh, you know, other people do that kind of stuff, <laughs> not us. We are right. dignified and, you know, sure there was that Sumner thing, but, you know, we're all about Daniel Webster and liberty and union. It, well, exactly. I always, I, I know people can't see me on a podcast doing this, but whenever I talk about yeah. this, I always say that people imagine the 19th century is people like Daniel Webster standing there with his finger in the air, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying a noble lofty thing, but that's their impression of the mm-hmm. antebellum Congress. So, yeah. And so uh, tell us about more about your research process, because you actually include an entire appendix in your book, sort of explaining your methodology, which you know not a lot of uh, not a lot of historians often do. But in, in this case, you thought it was important because you sort of had to explain how it was you were able to you know detect emotion, you know tone, things like that. It helped you unpack this sense of violence and all these violent events you found. Yeah, I mean, I I figured. Well, I guess I partly figured it. It was not easy to find and reconstruct Mm -hmm. the violence. Um, Much of it is essentially censored out of the period's equivalent of the congressional record, which meant I was piecing things together. Mm -hmm. And so in part, I thought, well, if this is going to be a whole book grounded on things that are very hard to find that I pieced together, I kind of owed it to historians who Mm -hmm. were going to be looking at the book to document my process. Mm -hmm. Part of what and I was interested in this in my first book, and I remain interested in this book, is um, how do you use um, emotion as yeah. evidence, right? So that was another thing I kind of wanted to document in my appendix was um, what what am I looking for? Like, what was my evidence? Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes that's very straightforward, um, and it has to do with, you know, a newspaper referring to something or, or the record, you know, the congressional sure. record saying, hinting at something, and my investigating and then discovering, oh, yeah, that was violence. What, what would the record say that would kind of hint at something but not really get into the, the meat of the details? The debate became unpleasantly personal at some point. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, um, and then after a while, I learned that would be a thing for me to dig into, mm-hmm. or um, there was a sudden sensation in the corner. There was a disturbance in the force, and we had to close. <laughs> well, so in the case of the you know conversation became unpleasantly personal. I uh-huh. think in that instance, a congressman pulled a gun on another congressman. Oh, okay. And in the un- the sensation in the corner, two congressmen got in a fist fight and flipped a desk. <laughs> so, but but you know you wouldn't think that right, right? seeing that. There's no reason why you would. It just applies, implies a disagreement. Like maybe there was some loud argumentation. Right. Exactly, but, like an unpleasant argument. But, but not a not a bar fight. No, exactly. You don't you don't see bar fight in your mind when you read sudden <laughs> sensation. So yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know you were already interested in violence, and you and you uh, were thinking about uh, how to interpret the sources you were finding and how to piece all this all this stuff together. So what kind of questions were you asking yourself as you were wading through all this material? Well, initially, my big question was, how much of this is there? Mm. In terms of source material or in terms of the actual prevalence of violence? The actual violence. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, finding it was interesting. So I guess you could say the first question yeah. was, how the heck do I keep going <laughs> yeah. and finding it? But I had, I did have, uh, was lucky enough to have those three months at the Library of Congress. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that gave me all this time to dig through the papers of congressmen. And the fact of the matter is that I never opened a, a congressman's papers without finding at least one incident, which told me wow. something, yeah. right? That there was... Um, They're all watching it. Yeah. Or so participating in it. In one way or another, they're either witnessing it or noting it or being involved in it or hinting at it. You know, um, I remember uh, finding, I guess at the Library of Congress, a P, it was like, P.S., did you hear about that thing with tombs, period? And I remember thinking, that sounds fishy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But it was like four years later that I found, found out a different on. document, and I was like, "Oh, I knew yeah. that." Was it. <laughs> so initially, it was just, "What is? What am I looking at, and how much of it is there?" Then I needed, of course, to understand why it was happening, what it suggested about the dynamics of Congress, mm-hmm. how that changed over time, how the public did or didn't 
uh, understand or see or, mm -hmm. or witness it and the impact that it had. Um, and so then it became really, you know, once I knew, had a sense of, and the fact of the matter is I, I did not, it is by no means a comprehensive study of sure. violence. If I kept looking, I would keep finding. Mm -hmm. But after a while, um, I, as a matter of fact, um, our advisor, his voice was in my head, Peter Onif. And when I was in grad <laughs> school, he would keep saying to me, you have enough research, Joanne. Yeah, exactly. You could stop now and write. So his voice was telling me, okay, Joanne, <laughs> you've got enough research. Now start writing. At once helpful and also the stuff of nightmares yeah. to this day. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Sorry, Peter. <laughs> we love you, Peter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, and, and, <laughs> and so, and... You, and to get to your point there, you, you describe in one of the early chapters as Congress as the union incarnate for better or worse. And so how should we think about Congress in the years before the Civil War? Well, you know, one of the things that intrigued me about Congress as, as the locus of my mm -hmm. study is that it's an interesting kind of um, representative point in a way beyond the fact that it happens to be a representative <laughs> institution. But yeah, I mean, sure. in Congress, there are people from all over the union who in one way or another are put in one of two mm -hmm. rooms and forced to work together or smack against each other, but in one way or another to bang up against each other and have something happen. Mm -hmm. And what intrigued me about particularly this time period was people coming from all over the union with different cultures and different understandings about conflict and then obviously fundamentally different assumptions about major issues right. like slavery. What happens when you put those people in a room mm -hmm. and they're in conflict. So that that was Congress itself as part of what intrigued me is the body where oh. that takes place in a way that it almost doesn't happen anywhere else. So part of what I meant by Congress being the union incarnate was that, sure. that it's a place where the um, conflicts of the union are literally being worked out mm -hmm. with this representative group of people who themselves assume that they are standing in for their people, their state, their region. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, someone, uh, th there's an instance I remember finding at some early point where I think it was someone from Ohio wanted to get the attention of the speaker and the speaker ignored him and he said something like, how dare you treat Ohio that way? <laughs> and I was yeah. like, okay, well that's interesting, right? Because yeah. that's not like, hey, I'm an important congressman. Yeah. That's, you just attacked my state. So that to me, I think at some point in the book, I, I call that performative representation, mm -hmm. meaning sure. the members of Congress were literally performing the status and honor and reputation and importance of what they represented. And that that's an, another way in which I thought um, Congress in one way or another is, is the union mm -hmm. really working itself out. Let's imagine for a second that, um, and I'm, I'm sort of cheating here because I'm, <laughs> I'm going to pull from the first chapter of your book, but so let's say it's the 1840s and I'm, I'm hanging out with Charles Dickens, who happens to be on his tour of, of, of America at that point, and he, he wants to visit Congress. And so there's no C-SPAN. There's no, there's no way to watch the debates. There's no Twitter. Uh, maybe we can, we can go back to no Twitter. But, um, so we have to be there in person. So what are, what are we going to see if, I, if we're sitting in the gallery? At that point. Well, one of the interesting things, uh, and let's let's put ourselves in the House because oh, I think yeah. that's that's, that's a one. bigger surprise. Yeah. yeah, I mean the Senate. Control again, I, chaos. I think as you called it, organized the House, chaos. Organized yeah. chaos, but yeah, I mean the you know we I think um, we have an image of Congress, particularly in this period, mm -hmm. as you know these staid men in the black frock coats all sort of sitting there at their yeah. desks and one person sort of holding forth at the front of the room and, you know, <laughs> people like, you know, banging their canes in agreement. I don't know yeah. what people imagine, but they sure don't imagine what it was really like. And the fact of the matter is, particularly the House, uh, and particularly after a time, there were too many people in too small a space because the states kept joining the You're union right. and the space was a small space. So it was crowded. It was loud. No one, they were not sitting happily and quietly at their desks. They were mulling around. Mm -hmm. They were talking to each other. If it was evening, they were sleeping on the floor. There were um, clerks and aides and people sort of running around, handing things, moving things. I mean, it was, it was a very, um, and particularly the House, loud, somewhat disorganized, mm -hmm. chaotic space in which the acoustics were really bad. Huh. So you also had members of Congress like screaming and yelling and moving their arms around. I think someone uh, referred to it as looking like a room full of people doing calisthenics because <laughs> they were, you know, trying to get the attention of the speaker so that they could get a word in. So it's it's not um, our image of what it's mm -hmm. like. There's actually uh, in the book an illustration um, that shows yeah. not what we think, but this really crowded, busy, bustling. We look like body. a pack a can of sardines. Sort of. Sort of. Um, I can't remember who 
I was talking to at some point a, a congressional historian who at a very early point in the project read it and said um, it made the house seem like a bus station. <laughs> 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 Which I suppose kind of, yeah. but but it, it, it's realistic in yeah. the sense that that's you know that that captures something of it. So for example, just recently um, I watched rewatched uh, the movie Lincoln, mm-hmm. you know, and Congress is really well behaved in that. Well, I'd say they, you know, except for with Thaddeus Stevens, I think you know yeah. everyone else is sort of like oh aha yeah, yeah right it's all sitting happily in their seats. And when I saw that movie the first time, I went with a friend who was a historian, and I was like, yeah no. Yeah, <laughs> Spielberg no. got that one wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But and this, this, the they didn't have you know office buildings like they their offices was right were right there as well. They were sitting at their desk shuffling papers and writing right? constituents and things like that. Right. No, they didn't have offices. It was either their desk or some of them obviously back in their boarding house mm-hmm. or if they happened to be staying at a hotel, they might do some of their business there. But yeah, it wasn't like now where there's a whole bureaucratic infrastructure and yeah. uh, not at all. It sounds fun, uh, really. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for you. <laughs> I don't no, know about for me. I don't want to do that. <laughs> well, one of the key figures in your book is a man named Benjamin Brown French. Uh, you just mentioned clerks a minute ago. He was um, kind of a lifer, a clerk. He was a, <laughs> he, he uh, was a gentleman who uh, was a, a, a um, sort of beholden to political appointments and things of that nature. So who, who is this dude, um, and, and why... You call him the history stalker, which I yeah. I want to talk about that. But so, who is this guy, and why is he such a central figure in this in this book? Well, so when I first started working on the book, I actually couldn't figure out how to tell the story. Mm-hmm. You know, so I had like um, the the number kept changing depending on my what I found. But in the end, I ended up with you know like seventy physically violent incidents. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you tell that story? Right. And I didn't necessarily think it was an and-then kind of chronological book mm-hmm. because it's not as though there's a clear arc. So I couldn't figure out how to tell that story. And it took me actually a really long time, and I wrote several chapters several different ways, and the book kept, I, I thought I would be doing this for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, and eventually I thought, well, maybe if there's a person at the center of it rather than mm-hmm. chronology at the center of it, that somehow will, will you, can, you can travel through the story with a person. I see. Initially, I thought that person was going to be John Quincy Adams oh, yes. because he has amazing diary mm-hmm. and he has such strong, you know, attitudes about everything, and he's, you know, and he's at the center of so mm-hmm. many things. But that didn't work for a variety of reasons. And I knew, you know, historians in a general way know that this guy Benjamin Brown French, he's a, a initially a minor clerk from New Hampshire. He um, was involved in the Lincoln White House. He was the commissioner of public buildings mm-hmm. under Lincoln. So Lincoln scholars know him very well because oh. they mind his diary and his papers because he has all kinds of amazing anecdotes and he interacts with Lincoln a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I investigated him and discovered actually at the Library of Congress, you know, he has an 11-volume diary. He had a newspaper oh column, an extensive correspondence. He wrote poetry about politics. <laughs> he, I mean, he was he, – he made um, – photo albums for his sons of Washington, D.C. in the period when he was there. He's like, people, I assumed people were going to think that I invented him. Um, (laughs) But what was wonderful about him is he's from rural New Hampshire. He gets given this minor clerkship in Washington. So he arrives in Washington with these big eyes that like, wow. And so you, you experience it with him. But what's fascinating about him is he comes to Washington and to Congress as what would have been known at the time as a doe-faced Democrat, mm-hmm. meaning he's a northern Democrat willing to do anything to appease the South on the subject of slavery to, in his mind, hold his party together and mm-hmm. hold the union hold together, the union together and promote himself and his party. So he comes as that person um, and has a lot to say about everything. And by the end of the book, so by 1860, so it begins in 1833, mm-hmm. it ends in 1860. Um, by 1860, he goes out to buy a gun in case he needs to shoot Southerners. And my thought was, if I can take the reader mm-hmm. from point A, I'll do anything to appease the South, to point B, which is, well, today I went into town and bought a gun because if they're right. going to attack us for our ideas, I've got to be ready to defend myself. That's going to tell you something yeah. about, in the book, I call it the emotional logic of disunion, right? Mm-hmm. How do you, it's not even reason, I was going to say reason your way. How do you work your way from point A to point B to a point where Americans are ready to turn on each other um, and have othered each other to such an extreme point mm-hmm. that it, it ends up being a war? And so he ended up being crucial for that mm-hmm. because... Um, partly because of his diary, and he's he's so effusive in his writings. He's a very um, 
I mean, he's an enjoyable character generally. He was kind of a hail fellow well-met guy that everybody liked, which is helpful if you're trying to have a narrator. Yeah. Um, but he really effectively, I think, shows a, a change over time of his feelings about the North, the South, Congress, and the Union, which I, I think, I think in the book I call it a, a new thread of understanding mm-hmm. about how the nation moved towards civil war. Because we don't we don't normally look at it from a personal level, right? We always think about oh well, you know, slavery was expanding into the territories, and then there was, you know, the Missouri Crisis and the Compromise of 1850 and Kansas Nebraska, and then we get to civil war. But we sort of don't think about the emotional toll it takes on people who are actually experiencing these events and the ways in which emotion drives the events, mm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and and in our current politics, we're in a moment where emotion is driving politics, and politics is driving emotion. Sure. Um, and there's something a similar dynamic. I mean, I suppose you could say that's always true, mm-hmm. but in periods of extreme polarization, mm-hmm. the emotion becomes part of the story. Um, and so that's part of the story I was telling was people deploying violence, manipulating violence to get what they want and intimidate others and appeal to the public. So it, emotion and, and ultimately bullying was um, politics in this period. So how, how are people deploying that emotion and how are they using bullying? I mean, Henry, Wy- Henry Wise was a good one, uh, for example. He didn't like the term, but what did he, he like the term? Um, oh, something like, uh, I can't remember what you call uh, yeah, it, a convincing it was, person or something. Yeah, else, it was like an, uh, But not bully. No, I'm not a bully. I can't remember what it was, but it was like a difficult person. Difficult, yeah. yeah. So how, are, how, how is this violence manifesting itself uh, in Congress? Well, so first of all, I should say that it's not as though every member of Congress like came with boxing gloves and a cane, <laughs> you know. So it's not as though they were all violent. Sure. I would say that roughly in any Congress or in, in any House, mm-hmm. because the House is more physically violent, the, the Senate tends towards dual challenges. The House, they have knives and guns. Um, about well, it, t- say it's kind of like the the perfect representation of what the House and Senate, you know, the House is supposed to be the rougher part <laughs> of the know. Republic, and the Senate's supposed to be the more dignified House of Lords. Yeah, yeah indeed. Yeah. And I suppose there's a little bit of truth in this time yeah. period to that. And Henry Wise of Virginia is a great mm-hmm. example of that. Um, it, for, generally speaking, over time, Southerners were the people who provoked the violence, and that that remains true. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, a lot of the violence was party violence, you know, and so the book starts really with the rise of what we now call the second party system. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the violence is Southern members of one party intimidating members of another party. Mm -hmm. And over time, as the slavery issue intensifies, obviously that becomes the real center of things. And generally speaking, you have Southerners who, they're not necessarily eager to inflict violence, but they are really eager to bully and intimidate and threaten people Mm -hmm. into not resisting them and into getting what they want. Mm -hmm. And because Southerners, generally speaking, are more comfortable with man-to-man violence, Mm -hmm. are more likely to be armed, um, are very comfortable with dueling culture in a way that Northerners aren't. This is part of what got me interested in Congress, right? You have these Southerners with this one kind of culture about conflict and violence and politics, and Northerners with a different one, which isn't to say that the North isn't violence. They just preferred rioting in the streets, and (laughs) Southerners were more into man-to-man combat. But still, in Congress, the Southern mode of fighting was a handy thing. Mm -hmm. So Southerners would, um, when they wanted to shut someone up, threaten them in some way. And people knew that these men tended to be armed. And they didn't necessarily have to do anything violent to get their way in that kind of a climate. They just had to make it clear that they were willing to. Sometimes they actually did become violent. Um, Sometimes it was just a matter of pulling out a knife or a gun um, or running at someone with a cane. Um, In the book, I talk in that appendix about how I define violence or not violence because um, if two men yelled at each other that did not count as violence. Uh, physical violence mm-hmm. had to have some physical component to it. But basically, the Southerners were trying to bully and intimidate their opponents into either never standing up to object or into backing down mm-hmm. if they did. And it and it worked really well. Well, that's one of the, the fascinating things I took away from the book is that, y- yes, there are some spontaneous incidents of violence, but a lot of it is very methodical, very calculated. And, and in, in a lot of instances, they're doing, as you say, they're trying to get their opponents to back down, but at, at some point they do pass points of no return where they can't stop the train from where it's going, and it right. does result in a duel or it does result in a right. in a beating or something of that to that effect. Right. And so, and one of the great things I think you do in the book is you use um, you use the duel between Jonathan Sealy of Maine and William Graves of Kentucky as sort of an example of how. 
these there are people who are attempting to resolve differences, but at some point, the the negotiations break down. And and these two guys they don't even really want to fight. They don't even have any personal animosity, but they are representing their respective cultures, and they eventually end up in a field outside of the district. Right. Absolutely. And that and that's so the the first chapter or two really just tries to give you a sense of what. Congress was like and Washington was like and congressmen were like. But that chapter is really the first chapter where I try and get at, you know, what the heck is this violence? Yeah. And that duel between Silly and Graves, and it is the Silly Graves duel, which <laughs> thank you, fates of history. Yeah, exactly. but, that's, um, but what's interesting about it is just as you say, neither one of them wanted it. And so that, I, th I think somewhere in that chapter, I call it the duel that no one wanted. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. No one wants that duel. These two men don't dislike each other. And so for me, that was a great way to explore. Mm -hmm. If no one wants to fight this, how is it that they feel pulled in? So what yeah. is the pull of violence? And why is it so hard to pull away from it? And that duel is a great example of that. And they even get to the point where they are dueling, and they shoot at each other a couple of times and miss. And they decide to keep going because, well, they're Henry Wise is involved in this one, so he's he's their um, seconds, yeah, their seconds. So he's negotiating on 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 behalf of his first, and uh, but he and he's instrumental in keeping the fight going until you know one of them ends up dead. Well, right. I mean, so the tricky part of it is, um, and and which is true in any duel. Um, so someone's honor has been offended, mm -hmm. and you, there ends up being a duel. So the person whose honor has been offended needs to somehow or other feel that his honor has been redeemed. Now, sometimes all that requires is two guys to go out on a field and shoot at each other. Yeah. This duel is complicated partly because neither one of them is really good with a gun, yeah. and so they keep misfiring, and there's a variety of things that happen on the, the dueling ground. But, you know, it, it, honor has to be satisfied before the duel is done. Mm -hmm. And so you're right, these two men... First one misfires and then the other misfires, and after each exchange of fire, the seconds go between the two men and they try and figure out if there's a way to back out of it. And if, um, in this case, it's Graves who felt offended, mm -hmm. um, if he didn't feel that honor had been satisfied and that something more was required, then yeah, the duel had to keep going on. And um, Henry Wise, who is an experienced duelist and who had been given instructions by Graves beforehand about what he wanted to feel his mm -hmm. honor had been redeemed, it has to keep going. And then ultimately, yeah, there's a death. I can't imagine what it's been like, like with the two duels, though, to just sort of sit there and watch as their their seconds negotiate, Yeah, you know, three or four times. They've already gone, they've already discharged their weapons, you know. It's previously. hard to imagine. Can you, well, and there's, so one of the wonderful things, uh, sources for that chapter mm -hmm. was um, because one congressman kills another, uh, there's an investigation, yeah. a congressional investigation, and the report of the committee was an amazing, amazing source mm -hmm. because it has sworn testimony of everyone involved, people who witnessed it, and they all say things that you would never find any other way. So in some sure. ways, that's probably the best documented duel mm -hmm. in American history that we have. So in that moment, when you have the two men, they fire, then they stand there and their seconds negotiate, there, we have someone who says, you know, well, I think it's the uh, uh, the son of a farmer who owned the land, and he um, is standing next to Graves, and, you know, he's like, wow, you know, you guys, is this like about something in Congress? And Graves is like, yeah, yeah, kid, yeah, go, yeah, go away. away. Yeah. But he's, he's like, so, you know, you're going you're gonna to fire again? And, and, you know, Graves is sort of like, it looks like we might have to fire again. Like, yeah. it's a hard thing. I don't really want to, you know. And I can't imagine any of us will shoot the other one because we're so far away from each other, which sadly wasn't true. But you even have someone witnessing the mm -hmm. fact that on the dueling ground, uh, Graves is like, this would be good if this were done. Yeah, can we just maybe fire in the air and call yeah, it a yeah, game or yeah. something like that? Well, how did, and you referenced um, slavery here a little bit ago, and so how, what, what, what role does the expansion of slavery you know, play in shaping congressional violence? And you mentioned John Quincy Adams earlier, who was just a thorn on the side of, of the um, uh, pro-slavery power. But So how does that dynamic work? Well, so generally speaking, on the one hand, you have Southerners who have an advantage of, of weaponry and fighting <laughs> culture, right, and, and who also are very willing and eager to deploy that advantage mm -hmm. in defense of the institution of slavery. Obviously, this period of time is a period where state after state is trying to join the union, and every new state mm -hmm. brings the problem of slavery front and center. So that helps certainly fuel the violence. And it's how do you negotiate that, right? I mean, there are a number of 
compromises made throughout sure. this time period, but the compromises are sort of way stations as opposed to solutions mm -hmm. of anything. And so um, Southerners, not just, I mean, they're certainly defending their interests and their economy, mm -hmm. but their honor is also bound up as well, particularly given that um, increasingly during this period, you have really aggressive anti-slavery advocates sure. who are insulting not just slavery, but the South. And so Southern honor gets bound up in this too, so that people, Southerners are not simply saying, <laughs> if I knock this guy out, I'll be sure to save this yeah. bill. But it's also partly like I think the charming John C. Calhoun says something like, you know, only only two ways to deal with these people. Um, shut them up or knock them down or something like that. It's like, you know, how do you deal with people who mm -hmm. attack the South and slavery and you? Well, you have to you have to step forward and, and sort of aggressively defend. Defend it. Yeah. Or and, you use, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I would say, or you use parliamentary procedure. Well, right. Well, or you try to use parliamentary procedure. Yeah. I mean, the fact, that, and that's actually a really good point, right? Which is, it would be easy to look at this and say, surely it is not following congressional procedure to be slugging each other with canes and pulling <laughs> knives yeah. and guns. And there was a, a tolerance for a certain amount of violence, partly because this is a violent period of time, right? Mm -hmm. Politics is violent in this period. And I think to some degree, if it felt like a fair fight in Congress, so if people felt that whatever was happening, the two sides were well pitted against each other, mm -hmm. they kind of stood back sure. and let things happen. It was when things seemed imbalanced that they might step forward. But but that's how you end up with certainly some people trying, like John Quincy Adams, trying to use parliamentary procedure to get their mm -hmm. way and other people knowing that there's some wiggle room with violence. Now, John Quincy Adams is, is wonderful to study in this period because he's kind of... Um, <laughs> Sort of. This is quite not the wrong, not the right way to put it, but it, it'll get the point across. He's yeah. kind of bulletproof because <laughs> <laughs> he, he's um, he's an older guy, right? He's, yeah. So he's a senior citizen by this point. Yeah. Uh, he's a former president. He uh -huh. comes to Congress back to the House after his presidency, and he's the son of a founder. Yeah, you're not going to punch John Quincy yeah, Adams on any no, and he knew that, and he and he was a parliamentary master, mm -hmm. but he deploys that with absolute skill. So he knows he can basically say to the Southerners, yeah, bring it on. Yeah, yeah. Just come on. Think you think you're and they can't they can't do anything. They can't do anything. It. So like the, the the wonderful Henry Wise, who's such a bully, um, at one point, you know, basically Adams pulls the, you know, yeah, well, I dare you to do something. And Wise says something like, um, if you weren't who you are, you would feel more than the power of my words. And Adams writes in his diary that night, oh, today Henry Wise threatened me in my seat. But he knew <laughs> yeah. that no one's going to do anything. And, and every once in a while, there's a guy by the name of, um, such a great 19th century name, Ratliff Boone. <laughs> and Ratliff Boone like, looks so frightening that people are going up to Adams and being like, uh, Ratliff Boone is looking a little bit like he's going to mm -hmm. confront you. you know? And then Adams scorned it you know he basically they, they won't they don't You're they won't do anything they won't no so he so he was a perfect person to stand against southerners in the cause of slavery but what's fascinating about him is he knew that the north was not going to respond as aggressively mm -hmm. against slavery as they might against their rights being offended so he when he's fighting slavery the way he really fights it is by saying hey northerners your right of petition is being violated. Oh, yes, yeah. You have a right to petition the government on slavery. And guess what? Your petitions are not yeah. being brought to the floor. They're being gagged, right? We're not allowed to talk about Southern about slavery on the floor. And your right to petition is being violated. And sure enough, he's savvy, right? What happens is Northerners are like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Our right of petition. And it gets people riled up. And ultimately, at that moment in time, the, the gag rule, what comes to be known mm -hmm. as the gag rule, fails. People have to back down. So he's effective. He's really effective with that kind of And that's amendment. in the Constitution, too, right? The, well, the First Amendment, right? You know, yeah. The government oh, absolutely. Grievances. So oh, he's, absolutely. He's got, he's got constitutional muster on his side. Yeah. And, and just, you know, if you think about it, that's like a fundamental all the way back for Americans, mm -hmm. even before there was a Constitution, the right to petition. Well, wasn't some of the arguments against allowing petitions on the floor from Northerners, the Southerners would say something to the effect of, well, slavery is not a problem. It's not a, well, slavery is not an issue for Northerners. Slavery doesn't exist there. So therefore, they have no right to you know, Some people said things. that. Some Northerners said that, mm -hmm. even. As a matter of fact, Benjamin Brown French at one point early on says, well, this is their problem. 
you know, this is not our problem. It's, it's like, yeah, problem. surprise. No, it really is your yeah. problem, too. But, but yeah, um, there were some people who had that argument. It's a Southern thing, so let the Southerners deal with it, and Northerners shouldn't get in the way. But, you know, Benjamin Brown French is a great example of how tangled the issue of slavery was mm -hmm. for people in this period, because at various points, there's like one diary entry where he says something like, um, let's see if I can get this straight. Um, I don't want to talk about slavery. It's a dangerous issue. Slavery needs to be eliminated. It shouldn't spread, but we shouldn't get in the way of it spreading. It's like the most tangled, conflicting, contradictory statement. And you can see this guy trying to figure out what he feels about slavery. And he can't even in his diary get it yeah. down in a sentence that makes sense. Which is a great sort of example of what the rest of the country is doing at that point. Right. Um, so thinking about this the violent moment in American history. As you said earlier, we are also in a, in a, um, a period of discontent, maybe to put it mildly. So how might a book like this help us to understand our own historical moment and how, you know, our expectations for how Congress should behave, especially now where, you know, we're recording this on October the 3rd, 2019, so there's, in, the, the I word is in the air, impeachment. Yeah. Uh, and so, and, you know, there's a real conflict between the executive and the legislative branch right now. And so, you know, how can this help us sort of make sense of um, how we're all going to survive this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish I had the answer to that, and I don't. Um, but what I can say, I can say two things. So on the one hand, I could say um, definitely when you look at the 1850s, mm -hmm. um, when you look at the late 1790s, when you look at the 1960s, uh, and when you look at the present, um, there are things that all of those periods have in common. And, and I don't know if I would have focused on this mm -hmm. until I focused so much on the 1850s. But the fact of the matter is, I think there are moments in time when um, there's some real fundamental aspect of um, Americanness or, or, or nationhood in some mm -hmm. way that's really up for debate that people understand is up for debate. And in the 1850s, that's obviously slavery, the, the right of slavery, to have slavery, to own slaves. Um, and during those moments, I think politics becomes highly polarized. Mm -hmm. um, people start to lose faith in national institutions because they can't resolve the problem. Political parties start to splinter. Um, conspiracy theories start to float through the press. Uh, often, and actually in many of these cases, technology kind of fuels the problem by spreading oh, this. Yeah. So in the 1850s, the telegraph is a relatively new technology, mm -hmm. and it's spreading around all of this angst in a new kind of way, in the same way that social media today yeah, is. Yeah, the first Twitter. It is, pretty much. I, and they respond that way, right? Like, whoa, I just said this, and now <laughs> 45 minutes later, the whole country can see what I'm saying. I think there are ways in which polarization, that kind of polarization plays out in American democratic politics. Mm -hmm. and. So there are, I mean, when I was finishing the book, you know, within the last couple of years, it was actually really hard to work on it because of the echoes of, sure, of yeah. what we were experiencing. And, and, you know, there was a point um, when I was writing about, um, so at the end of the book, I, I begin to write about Northerners finally deciding to fight back. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to figure out the logic of that, the emotional logic of that. And I remember... Um, I won't go into the politics of it. I will just say that as I was working, I had some cable news station on, mm -hmm. uh, and they were talking about someone, and I was half listening as I was writing, sitting at my desk thinking like, okay, so let me get in the mind of a northerner. Why are they suddenly cheering to fight? And all of a sudden, listening to the TV, I said out loud, damn it, fight back. <laughs> like, You're like, yes, I've got yeah, it. Uh, uh, there you go, Freeman. Like, <laughs> you just figured it out. So there's a there's an emotional dynamic mm -hmm. that is understandable in that way. So certainly that's something that these kind of moments can teach. And I should say, the 1790s, they were kind of, in the late 1790s, they're kind of arguing over how democratic a politics uh -huh. the United States is going to have. The 1960s, it's civil rights. And you could say now citizenship is really kind of the oh, fundamental yeah. thing. So I, I think there are moments where it makes sense that, mm -hmm. that, you know, which isn't to say that they're all the same or that everything's sure going to be fine because it's been fine before. I have no idea. But um, certainly there's a way in which what we're experiencing mm -hmm. now is something we've Experience before. Echoes of the past. Yeah, yeah. And maybe if uh, French was here, he could have stalked this moment as well. We have to talk about him as a history stalker because yeah. it's so good. Well, that was what amazed me. Was so he was present at one of Jackson's assassination, or not? Not Jack. Well, Jackson did assassinate some people, sort of. Um, 
uh, an attempt on his life. He right. was there when Adams, uh, John Quincy Adams, dies, uh, or is or he's, near he's, when he he's dies, near yeah. death. He knows Lincoln. Um, oh, even better, he was at the Gettysburg Address. Gettysburg Address. Yeah, that's right. The photos <laughs> in the book, and he's like, I know. And and he and he thinks wasn't it at one point he thinks that he manhandled John Wilkes Booth yes. at one point? And he, yes. Yeah. No, he's amazing. I, I, I really thought people were going to think I made him up. So, yeah, yeah he, he's right there when someone tries to assassinate Andrew Jackson. Um, he is holding John Quincy Adams' hand after he has a stroke mm-hmm. in the house. Not quite when he dies, but very close. Very close. Um, he is indeed standing behind Lincoln on the platform during the delivery of the Gettysburg Address and writes um, – the, a poem that's put to music and sung at the mm. commemoration at Gettysburg. Uh, he does indeed stop someone uh, during Lincoln's inauguration, who guy who steps forward and insists on his right to be there. And French says, I didn't recognize him, but he seemed so insistent on his right that eventually I gave way and let him go. But by that point, Lincoln had walked by, and so Lincoln was saved. And then later on, he sees a photograph and says, oh, my God, like, I, I think that was wow. I stopped the assassin. Uh, And then, you know, um, he wakes up. There's a wonderful, amazing diary entry about him waking up uh, the morning after the assassination of Lincoln, uh, going out onto the street, seeing that the streetlights were still on and not understanding why, and then finding out what had happened. And he's the commissioner of public buildings. So he's racing around Washington trying to close down government Mm -hmm. buildings because no one knows what's happening except that there's been all of this violence and so he's like right at the yeah. at the absolute center, and then it continues on that the the platform that Lincoln's uh, coffin is put on when he's put in state in the Capitol building is built by French's son, son. and the statue of Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial is built by his nephew, <laughs> sculpted by his nephew. So anyway, French is like, he's thank everywhere. you, Benjamin Brown French. <laughs> I'm reading it, your book, and I'm thinking, this is like an episode of Doctor Who. This guy's a time lord. He's just showing up at all these important moments. It, yeah, and then writing it down. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. And he's best, he's like friends with Jonathan Silly, you know, involved in the duel, and he, uh, he's chatting all the time with John Quincy Adams about what's going I mean, he's, he's as a source, he can't be. He was one, well, and as you said, you know, he, he did have a political perspective, but his, his ability to be um, congenial with almost everybody made him somebody that, would, that other people would talk to and then allowed right. him sort of access to these moments where he could record these things. Right, right. Um, is, is, that, is that one of the things that sort of surprised you most or probably the thing that surprised you most over the course of your research of this book? You mean his... Uh... French is just ability to be in the right place at the right time every time. Well, I think what surprised me most, to be honest, was the amount of violence and mm-hmm. the way in which it was so deliberately deployed. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew, that, like I said, historians knew that there was some, but they sure didn't know how much, how much, and they didn't understand the dynamic of it or how it was playing with the public and mm-hmm. how that changed over time. So I think that, I don't think that ever stopped being surprising, because I think yeah. at a certain point I thought, well, now I'm going to run out of violence, and I kind of never did. Yeah. I just stopped researching. French was more like, um, not necessarily a surprise, but the most amazing gift. And uh, he never uh-huh. stopped being, you know, at the very end... I was like trying to figure out, I was at the epilogue, and you know, it took me 17 years to write the book. Uh-huh. So by this point, I'm like, I really want to finish the book now. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the epilogue. <laughs> how am I going to do this? What's going to, how am I going to wrap it up? And I'm literally, you know, I've kind of been living with French for at least a decade mm-hmm. by this point. So I'm, I'm saying, French, give me something. Like something for the epilogue. Yeah. I need something. Anything. I don't know what's going to be. And I'm digging through all the research I have, and lo and behold, what do I find? The year before he died, he wrote a poem about Congress. <laughs> like, Thank you, Benjamin Brown. The gift Brown that keeps Fred. on giving. He, he was the gift that keeps on giving. I even went to uh, his descendants up in New Hampshire, uh, visited oh, one of his descendants in New Hampshire. Uh, he still owns a lot of French's furniture and things, and so it was actually had a big portrait of French up on his wall. Wow. And he had no idea, very, very wonderful person to let me into his home, mm-hmm. but didn't really fully understand why anyone would be interested in reading this man's papers. Sure. I was like, oh, no, he's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's great. No, you're going you're to want to read this book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, how, how, do you, how do you think you've, you've changed as, as a historian since Affairs of Honor? Because you said, it, you know, you've been writing this particular book for about 17 years. And so, yeah. so how would you describe your own sort of evolution uh, and your, your approach to the historian's craft, as um, Peter might say? <laughs> That's a very Petery thing to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I suppose, you know, when I started the first book, um, by the time I finished it, I understood that part of what I was doing was um, 
using emotion as evidence in an interesting way, and I write about it briefly at the end of that book. I also understood that part of what I was doing was looking at an elite population um, kind of in an ethnographic way. Like, uh, let's stand way far back and say, if you have an elite population in this situation with mm -hmm. these circumstances, how do they behave and why? And th that those, so, those are some of the things that I was doing that were a little different. But the second book, that was kind of a starting point. Like, I knew I was going to be writing mm -hmm. about elites in that way. I knew that feelings and emotion were going to be a great form of evidence. With, when you're because it was further along, because my career was more advanced and I was a more senior historian, mm -hmm. I guess I had more, I gave myself more of a right to really step back and think about the broader implications of things, uh -huh. um, to venture a little bit out of my comfort zone, um, and to really, what if, to, to really sure. um, allow more leeway in what I was saying, allow, you know, I mean, if you had asked me, mm -hmm. Eight, 17 years ago, if I was going to write a book that got me up to the Civil War, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. am, I am an early national yeah. historian. Um, but in this case, you know, the evidence took me where it took me. Mm -hmm. And I think as a, a historian who's a little bit more advanced in my career, mm -hmm. I had at least enough confidence in myself to follow the evidence. Sure. And certainly that's, that's that in combination with the realization that some of what I was doing was already kind of a method uh -huh. of mine, what I like to do. I think both of those things were helpful. The confidence to carry it forward. Yeah. Well, so then you're very active in the public sphere as well. You know, you're on Backstory, um, which is uh, uh, through the Virginia, uh, Virginia uh, Foundation for the Humanities. Um, you know, you've, you've been involved in the Hamilton Project, the Hamilton Mania, uh, Hamilton certainly, uh, with Lin-Manuel Miranda. And uh, there's an exhibition that you helped curate, I think, in Chicago. So how, I mean, how does being out there in, in the world and, uh, and being a public intellectual, how did that help shape this book as well? Well, I mean, so I feel really strongly about that. I don't, I don't think every historian needs to feel compelled mm -hmm. to uh, directly address the public, but some of us sure do. Sure. Some of us need to. Um, and I think it's important that historians address the public with good, responsible history, mm -hmm. and that it's not just people who have an interest in history. And, and you know, uh, very often as someone who's with the public a lot, I find myself contradicting or refining what people think because they've had weird random places where they've learned things. So sure. I feel generally in my career that one of the things I do really well and that I feel committed to doing is to engaging with the public, mm -hmm. explaining to them why history is important, getting them engaged intellectually and emotionally with history, getting them to ask the right kinds of questions, getting them to think about government and American history in a complex way and, and not to assume myths and happy sort of glossy right. things and to really allow for the problems of the past that help explain the present. Mm -hmm. All of those things, I think, are things that historians can do well. So both my first book and this book, um, I, they're scholarly works, they're advancing arguments, uh -huh. there's deep research, Absolutely. but they're written in a way that I want at least some of the public, people who aren't historians, to be able to read them and get something out mm -hmm. of them. And that that's part of why it, it takes a long time to write them, because that's harder to do, sure. uh, to put scholarship and academic argument in that kind of an accessible way mm -hmm. of writing. I feel really strongly about that, and that's why I'm, I'm you know, all the, the, the podcast and all the public speaking I do and everything else, that's kind of what drives it. And given the moment that we're in, mm -hmm. as someone who works on the founding period, I particularly feel now it's so important for historians to be stepping forward and saying, well, this, this is what, you know, here are some of the ideals that we haven't lived mm -hmm. up to, but that certainly were there at the outset. Or here's how the Constitution is supposed to work. Or here, whatever, you know, stepping forward and actually offering um, grounded, contextualized mm -hmm. historical content is so important right now. So I feel really committed to that. Now, it's interesting that in the profession of, the, of being a historian, academic institutions don't always value that kind of work, right? I think right. that's extra bonus work in addition to whatever else you do. That that And public-minded work, I think, is still seen as not real scholarship. I'm certainly mm -hmm. someone who would like that to change um, because I think, I just think it's vitally important. Mm -hmm. I think part of what we're experiencing now is a lot of people who have absolutely no understanding of how our political system works, of where it comes from, of the problems and weaknesses and vulnerabilities over time, of the moments when we've, we've been able to surmount mm -hmm. them Without that knowledge, how are you going to know or, or judge what's happening right now? Yeah, well, it's part of the vocation, and, and as 
you know, how, how are you going to be an active and informed citizen yeah. if you're unwilling uh, to think about at least some historical context? Yeah. Well, uh, so what's next for you? Because, uh, you know, as you said, this took, this took a little bit of time to write. Um, <laughs> a little bit of time. That's very diplomatic <laughs> of you. <laughs> but I think it was totally worth it, though. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, at least my read on it, and I think all the reviews will be positive as well. And so, you know, wh- where do you think you want to go next? What's, what's, what's on the horizon? Well, um, so when I sold this book, uh, I sold two books. Ah, Two for One Special. Two for One Special. Um, a, a couple of years ago, and the reason I did it was, this will not surprise you, um, I, so I've been studying Hamilton for decades. Uh-huh. I mean, I, you know, so this is the most surreal moment in the world for me because I've been studying him for, I don't know, 35 or 40 yeah. years or even more. Um, but so I figured if I'm going to write a book about Hamilton, now is probably a good, good moment time, to, yeah. yes. So, um, but I'm not interested in writing um, just a straightforward biography. Mm-hmm. None of my books are really sort of straightforward, conventional right. histories. I really like to play with um, form and structure, mm-hmm. uh, which is why, like, this is a book told, you know, kind of through the eyes of a person rather than just a conventional history. Um, so what I want to do right now, the working title of the next book is Hunting for Hamilton. <laughs> and what I want to write about That's is awesome. how do you look for people in the past? Like, how do you reconstruct lives from the past? How mm-hmm. can you figure out, and then I'm going to use Hamilton because that's who I know almost better than any other sure. historical character. How do you figure him out? How do you sit and read someone's letters and figure out who he is? What does it mean when you go to the places where that person lived and position yourself mm-hmm. in them? How is that experienced? What does that mean? So I'm in the process of beginning that book, so I can't say I have any great, I don't have my, my shtick. I can't say, give you my. Yeah, what's the elevator pitch? Right? Yeah, I don't yeah. have an elevator pitch yet. You were getting the elevator pitch. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, in a way, it's, it's a little bit of a how book. It's going to tell you about mm-hmm. Hamilton as a person and a, and a politician in a way that I think probably many people can't do because um, I've been studying his writings for decades at sure. this point, so I know him like uh, frighteningly forwards, yeah. well, yeah. Um, you know, I always joke with my students, like I know his favorite snack foods, like I know what he <laughs> liked for breakfast. I, I know way too much about Alexander Hamilton. Um, but I wanna, I, I don't wanna just offer a conventional yet cozy look at Hamilton. Right. I really wanna use my knowledge of him to explore being a historian and to capitalize on the fact that people will wanna read it because it's mm-hmm. about Hamilton. Uh, and that'll kind of draw them in mm-hmm. to thinking about history in an interesting kind of a way. Well, I look forward to that. Uh, Thanks. I'm sure other people will too. Um, if you could like sort of just give me some of your brilliance so I can <laughs> do something similar, that would be fantastic. Um, but uh, I want to thank you very much for being here. This has been uh, really wonderful for me, and I'm sure it will be for our audience as well. And um, let's get you to your book talk so you can wow another audience. Okay, well, uh, thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our theme was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.